Bible prophecy continues to unfold with many surprises almost on a weekly and now sometimes daily basis. The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. That prophecy of Ezekiel has become reality in our generation. The story of Israel is part of the ministry of the Jerusalem Channel. Please consider making a special gift to continue our media ministry through our website, the Jerusalem Channel app, or by mail. Shalom, I'm Christine Darg. Bible prophecy continues to unfold at great speed. We love ministering in the United Arab Emirates, the UAE, and we were all stunned with the breakthrough headline news that the UAE will be the third Arab country to sign a peace deal with Israel after more than a quarter of a century following peace accords in July 1994 with Jordan and the first, of course, in 1979 with Egypt, which seems so long ago now. The Abraham Accord brokered by President Trump is a major timely victory for both Trump and Prime Minister Netanyahu, who isn't having to give up territory at the moment since the issue of annexation, or more accurately, sovereignty, has only been suspended, put on hold until after the American election. Furthermore, and this is significant, nations are coming into alignment according to Bible prophecy. The United Arab Emirates is basically part of biblical Sheba and Dedan, mentioned in Ezekiel 38, 13, territory that will be in alignment with Israel and not part of Confederate forces that will attempt to invade Israel. And those forces, we're told, in Ezekiel 38.5 include Persia, or, of course, Iran. Now, other Gulf states are expected to follow, even Saudi Arabia, which is also Sheba and Dedan territory, associated with Bible prophecy. Watchers of Bible prophecy know that eventually Israel will confirm a seven-year covenant, and that's according to Daniel 9.27. While, in a sense, all peace accords are moving toward the inevitable covenant that will unfortunately be made with Antichrist, nevertheless, we have to admit that the Abraham Accord is also a sign of the fact that the Jewish and Arab brothers are destined to live together. As Genesis 16:12 prophesied, Ishmael shall be a wild man, 
His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. That's just history. But that verse also says, and he shall dwell in the presence of all of his brethren. I found it so fascinating that Imam Tawhidi, the self-proclaimed Imam of Peace, wrote on his Facebook page, do you see how the God of Abraham is bringing the children of Abraham back together? He said, what a great way to welcome the Jewish New Year. And he ventured also to add, let's keep up this positivity and love and pray it lasts forever. A recent statement by Lebanon's president suggested that he would also be receptive to an agreement with Israel, similar to the one signed with the UAE. The pronouncement has huge political and security implications, suggesting that Hezbollah may be on its way out. But more importantly, Israeli rabbis say a pact of brotherhood with its neighbor Lebanon would be an element towards the construction of the third temple as it was in the days of King Solomon. You see, don't forget, Lebanon's flag prominently features a beautiful green cedar, the national symbol of Lebanon. In fact, the cedars of Lebanon were in the construction of the temple in Israel. The Lebanese state has created several reserves ensuring that reforestation efforts in Lebanon are genuine cedars of Lebanon and not other types. One of these reserves is actually called the Cedars of God and is one of the last vestiges of the extensive cedar forests in that country. Now, the following quote from Breaking Israel News actually was chilling to me. Commenting on peace agreements, a Jerusalem rabbi said that Benjamin Netanyahu, being a man of war like King David, is not suited to build Israel's third temple. Rather, he said, the man of peace who comes after him will build the temple. But peace treaties, he said, will create peace in the conditions for building the third temple. Little did that rabbi know that he was prophesying about the so-called man of peace in the future who will turn out to be antichrist and who will ultimately betray Israel. Well, what are we to make of all of this talk of peace? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying, Peace and security, peace and safety. Destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. And Jesus plainly told his followers that when you start seeing end-time prophecies beginning to come to pass, and especially when we see prophecies that we know from Scripture will find their ultimate fulfillment in and during the seven-year tribulation period, then we should look up because our redemption is coming. As I often say concerning these end-time signs, we're not looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for the sudden appearing in the clouds of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. Meanwhile, we pray for blessings and much protection on the United Arab Emirates, where we've always enjoyed an open heaven and where we helped to lead a revival in the 1990s, as documented in my book, Miracles Among Muslims, The Jesus Visions. We should look up, for today's prophetic news points to the soon appearing of the Lord in the rapture.
Meanwhile, the Lord of the harvest is the one who continues to call and equip each one of us. In our ministry, we have been helping to prepare the Lord's Isaiah 19 highway in the Middle East with Israel and her neighbors, and through all means possible, through media, prayer convocations, and various regional summits, anticipating the soon coming day when Jerusalem will become the worship capital of the world. We're working night and day to bring the light of the Lord to the nations, beginning from Jerusalem, according to the pattern of the Great Commission in Acts 1.8, which declares, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. Amen. Well, the cast of characters changes from time to time in the Middle East, but the disputes and the arguments can be traced all the way back to the Bible. And in the midst of the strife, Bible believers are called to be peacemakers and ministers of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.18 declares, God has reconciled us to himself through Messiah and given us the ministry of reconciliation. Recently in Israel, our ministry was recognized by the Root Source Organization as a pioneer in the bridge building ministry between Jews and Christians. Thanks to our great friend, Gidon Ariel at Root Source and his advisors for this recognition. Bridge building is an important and vital ministry. Bridge building between Jews and Christians is definitely part of God's great end time work because there's a transition going on and I'm very grateful for the calling and the spirit of revelation that God granted me to be able to participate and be a pioneer. It's all instituted by the God of Israel. The ministry of reconciliation between Jews and Christians is top, I believe, on God's agenda to bring the Saturday people and the Sunday people together to stand together. We're walking in a way that we have never walked before, and it's a great adventure. As a watchman on the walls of Jerusalem, it's my honor to reciprocate for all the blessings I've received through the Jewish people, the gifts of the Bible, the Savior, and the ability to engage with the land itself, which is a continual feast and adventure. And the Arabs who live within the land are just as interesting as the Jews, and God intends for them to live together in harmony and with their fascinating cultures. After centuries of persecution and distrust, I believe it's a miracle that Jews feel comfortable to forge new relationships with us Bible-believing Christians. It's always very special also to be taken to heart by their brethren, the Arabs. As we enjoy genuine fellowship, God continually surprises us with revelations that we wouldn't have received if we had stayed apart. We're living in a unique time, similar to the early church, when Israel and the church existed side by side. And lo and behold, it's happened again. I don't know how long these conditions will last before the rapture and the Lord returns, but I believe the church is in the process of handing the baton back to Israel to be the light to the nations. And during the Messianic kingdom, Israel will become the chief of nations. It's a privilege and an honor 
to have been a pioneering bridge builder at this strategic time. All glory to the God of Israel. And so I'd like to make a few observations about the ministry of reconciliation. First of all, a minister of reconciliation truly bears, has to bear, genuine, unconditional love for the people to whom we are sent. I once heard a great woman of God say, if you don't love the people, don't even try to engage with them. Just forget it. You'll be wasting your time if you don't love them, if you feel no empathy for them. But I've genuinely loved the Jewish people from my cradle. My love for them is unconditional because they are the people of the book. Because of having been brought up on the Bible at my parents' knees, the people of the book were my family. To me, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were part of my family tree, just reading about them and having them be a part of my early life. After all, non-Jewish believers in Yeshua are the spiritual seed of Abraham, the father of faith. And my parents instilled in me a proper reverential love for our elders in the faith. I didn't always appreciate the Arabs like I do now because I didn't know them from my youth like I knew the Jews from the Bible from my infancy. Nevertheless, the Holy Spirit put a fascination for the Maghreb, North Africa, in my spirit as a young girl. And after my husband and I moved to Israel to start a news bureau, through supernatural circumstances, I soon learned to love the half-brothers of the Jews, the Arab people also. The Lord taught me a scriptural understanding of the Arabs and how they're destined, along with Israel, to be part of God's great Isaiah chapter 19 roadmap during the millennial rule of Jesus. When my husband and I first moved to Israel, the Jewish people didn't really want to talk about Jesus. After all, they had just survived the Holocaust. So they perceived any mention of Jesus as proselytizing, but not so with the Arabs. One of my great mentors, German evangelist Reinhard Bonka of blessed memory, taught me that harvest time is a set time and we must never waste a harvest. And so to my utter amazement, the Muslims and the cultural Christian Arabs were open to the gospel, big time. I received that revelation when I was invited to preach a gospel message in an Arab home in Bethlehem. That was back in the 1980s. And my translator was a former Muslim whom I had led to the Lord. And everybody in that packed out house raised their hands to receive the Lord. I was so amazed and many healings took place. It seemed so easy to preach during a harvest as compared to the times of plowing and sowing. It was the same during our revival in the United Arab Emirates in the 1990s in open heaven. So my eyes were gloriously open wide to the receptivity of the Arabs to the gospel. And I took them to heart. After all, they're some of the most hospitable, loyal, and poetic souls in the world. But sometimes my friends didn't understand why I was hanging out with both Arabs and Jews. I perceived that this was a fresh move of the Lord, and I was very willing to help to spearhead it. I began to document signs and wonders in the Muslim world, 
according to the prophecies found in the books of Joel and the Acts of the Apostles, let alone what was happening in our own ministry. So we organized gospel outreaches in some of the great Muslim strongholds, and we experienced tremendous favor of God. I'm convinced I never would have enjoyed such favor if my love for the Arabs had been lukewarm. I would never have dared to do such things without gospel love constraining me. But simultaneously over the years, the Lord continued in his love and mercy and graciousness to open unprecedented doors for me amongst the Jews as well in Israel. For example, to study with rabbis and to co-chair Christian assemblies in the Israeli parliament, the Knesset. Can you imagine such doors opening in the American Congress or British Parliament? But this is God's time for the Middle East, that the Israeli Knesset would invite Christians in, even for Bible studies. So characteristic number one of a minister of reconciliation is a genuine God-given love for the peoples of the region to which you're sent. Secondly, the ministry of reconciliation identifies with the persons who need reconciliation with God, with the church, with the world. Romans 1.16 declares, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to the Jew first and then to everybody else. An important aspect of sharing the gospel with a Jewish person is being a faithful disciple of Jesus by standing with his physical family, the Jews, against the boycott, sanctions, and divestments movement known as BDS. How can we legitimize the gospel in their eyes if we don't withstand persecutors of the Jews and uphold the Jewish people who are the very foundation of the Bible? Paul wrote that the gospel is an offense to the Jews. Yet, look at this. As a minister of reconciliation, Paul also admonished us in 1 Corinthians 10, 32, don't give offense to Jews or to Gentiles or to the church of God, he wrote. So how do we balance his seemingly contradictory statements? How do we preach the gospel on the one hand and yet give no offense? It seems impossible, but we've been doing the impossible and men such as our great friend, Canon Andrew White, the vicar of Baghdad, have also been doing the impossible in this region. So to give no offense to Jews, Gentiles, or to the church of God is quite a tall order coming from Paul in the Bible. How could Paul boldly preach the gospel of Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah, and then on the other hand say carefully, give no offense to the Jews, to the Gentiles, or to the church? Well, I learned that the literal meaning of this verse is, give no occasions for stumbling either to Jews or to Gentiles or to the assembly of God. This means the well-being of others and not the gratification of self. Not trying to win an argument should be our constant goal. We have to be sensitive and spirit-led. The Apostle Paul certainly didn't shrink from giving offense when sin needed to be rebuked. In fact, wherever he went, the truth of his preaching resulted in anger and fierce passions. But the commentaries say that Paul really held no love for antagonism. He simply served the truth, but he didn't deliberately set out to antagonize people. He strove to reason with them. 
And I want to submit to you that this ministry of reconciliation requires wisdom. It requires Holy Spirit training and empathy. And it's what an ambassador of the Messiah, a minister of reconciliation is all about, to communicate truth effectively. It's a Holy Spirit skill. Sometimes it's just as important, for example, to change the subject as it is to preach. Faith-based diplomacy is one way of describing the ministry of reconciliation. Yet true ministers of reconciliation do not compromise the gospel. The people of the region know we love Jesus. They know we're looking for the second coming of Jesus while they're looking for the Messiah the first time. We don't hide our faith. They know that we believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Yet I also hope they know by now that we have no hidden agenda. We are present and counted for as disciples of Jesus to benefit the welfare of the Jewish state as well as to help to bring justice for everybody in the region. I like what one commentary says. The ministry of reconciliation is experimental, being entrusted to those who are themselves reconciled. It's a ministry accompanied with supernatural power, even the energy of the Holy Spirit. It's an authoritative ministry, which people are not at liberty to disregard or despise. It's an effectual ministry for those who discharge it faithfully, because Paul said poetically, we become the aroma of life unto life to many persons. But who's competent for these things? Paul asked in 2 Corinthians 2, the question forced itself on his mind because all ministers of reconciliation feel inadequate for this work that involves such tremendous and sensitive prophetic issues. A third aspect of the ministry of reconciliation should help us to relax because God the Father is the author of it. All we have to do is follow his lead and be faithful. Isn't that liberating? God takes the initiative. Many believers struggle for direction, but in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Messiah. The word ambassador in the Greek language is related to the word for an elder. It's a noble office meant to be held by mature, wise believers. An ambassador represents the Lord's government and his authority. So an ambassador is a sent one, a representative of the king of kings. An ambassador speaks a different language and lives in a foreign culture in order to represent his king because our citizenship is in heaven. Our mandate is to be a bridge between heaven and earth to inform people that they can be reconciled to God. It's often stated also by pre-tribulation prophecy teachers that the Lord will remove his church before the great tribulation of the end times why? Because a government always recalls its ambassadors before a war. Although peace in the last days will be deceptive, nevertheless, believers are called to be peacemakers. In Matthew 5, 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. His beatitude refers to peaceable dispositions to those who live peaceably with all men, to those who by God's grace have learned to subdue warring elements within our own hearts. For example, the rabbis teach that 
The brother of Moses, Aaron, loved peace and pursued it. It made peace between a man and his neighbor. Peaceable ministers of reconciliation endeavor as much as we can to discourage and prevent quarrels and contentions. While other signs, both great and small, continue to unfold for the astute watchman, the scriptures quite literally came to life recently for several Catholic churches in North Carolina when a rare earthquake rattled portions of that American state. Father Richard Sutter of St. Gabriel's Catholic Church said the lector in the Sunday service had just reached the 19th chapter of 1 Kings, a Bible passage referring to the prophet Elijah, which said, after the wind there was an earthquake. And right at that moment, parishioners felt the 5.1 magnitude earthquake, the most powerful to hit the state in more than 100 years. The priest said it can be a lesson for the times when there's fear from an earthquake, when there's fear from a storm or from a pandemic and uncertainty. We have to let the Lord speak to us the truth. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus and not on the waves or the earthquakes that we can't control. Well, when making this program, we're presently in the season that the Jewish people refer to as the season of repentance. While the Bible says now is the day of salvation and every day should be potentially a day of repentance, nevertheless, on the Hebraic calendar, there's a season of reflection that's so very helpful leading up to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It's also customary in Jewish circles to recite one of my favorite psalms every day during the Hebrew month of Elul leading up to the month of Tishri and the High Holy Days. And that psalm is Psalm 27, a psalm of David. And why this psalm? According to the sages, the High Holy Days are alluded to in this psalm. For example, Yom Kippur is alluded to in the first verse. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Because on Yom Kippur, the Jewish people believe God saves repentant souls from prosecuting angels and inscribes their names for a good, sweet, and healthy new year. A Christian believes that Jesus, Yeshua is his Hebrew name, is our salvation when we repent of our sins and receive the atonement that he wrought for us and he inscribes our names permanently in the Lamb's Book of Life. Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, is alluded to in verse 5 of Psalm 27, which says, For in the day of trouble he will hide me in his shelter. He will conceal me under the cover of his tabernacle. This is the same protective sense as Psalm 91. So for 40 days, the Jewish people blow the shofar, the ram's horn, and they recite a prayer that goes like this. Awake, you who are sleeping, wake up, listen to the shofar and ponder your actions and your deeds. Remember your creator and go to him for forgiveness. Don't be like those who waste years in seeking after vain things that can neither profit nor deliver. Look well to your souls and let everyone forsake his evil ways and thoughts and return unto the Lord so that he may have mercy on you. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the shofar can be used as an instrument of spiritual warfare, although it's primarily meant 
to stir the soul to face reality. It says, sleeping ones, wake up. And this idea is stated in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul was surely drawing from his Hebraic roots when he wrote to the Ephesians, Awake you who sleep and rise from the dead and Messiah will give you light. And this theme of awakening from the sleep is used elsewhere. One of the reasons why the church is failing to be salt and light in society these days is that the church has lost its focus on the coming king, but by faith, we're turning our focus back on the coming king. Amen. In the meantime, I want to draw your attention to our website, exploits.tv, which reports on current and end-time events relating to the church and the nation of Israel. At our website and Jerusalem Channel YouTube site, we offer you a library of videos 24-7. We also invite you to sign up for our free electronic magazine called Exploits, based upon Daniel 11.32, which declares that people who know their God will be strong and we will accomplish exploits, meaning we're going to do the works of the Lord in the remaining time before His imminent return. Well, in the Bible, we're commanded to be full of courage. And remember, the battle is His, not yours. God will be with you. He's promised never to leave you nor forsake you. I don't want you to be trusting in any false security for your salvation. So as we close the broadcast today, I want to leave you with Acts 16.29. What must I do to be saved? And the answer is, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Amen. Feel free to share your thoughts with me on the social media, and you can check out our many free videos, not only on our website, exploits.tv, but on your mobile phones or tablets by downloading our free Jerusalem Channel mobile app. Until next time, always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm Christine Darg. Shalom and Maranatha.